The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today, I am absolutely honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Paul Winchester. He is an award-winning, distinguished physician, board-certified in perinatal and neonatal medicine and pediatrics. With nearly 40 years of experience, he is widely regarded as one of the top physicians in his field. Dr. Winchester serves as the medical director of the Neonatal and Intensive Care Unit at St. Francis Hospital, and he is a professor of clinical pediatrics at Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana. His passion lies in helping mothers deliver healthy babies, and his research is focused on identifying risk factors that impact fetal development. He received his education at Stanford University, the University of Michigan, and the University of Colorado Medical Center. I heard Dr. Winchester speak in 2010 at a Beyond Pesticides forum in Cleveland, Ohio, and I have been following and citing his research on the relationship between exposure to pesticides and birth defects ever since. Welcome, Dr. Winchester. Hello. I wonder if you could explain a little bit how you began to think or investigate the role of pesticides in the birth defects that you were seeing. Well, I had the privilege of doing neonatology in several states and, in in a sense, had a clinical sense of how often I should be seeing birth defects of certain types. Uh, When I moved to Indiana, I I felt as if I were seeing more than my experience previously in New England, Kansas City, and Colorado. And I wondered kind of out loud to my faculty colleagues, you know, whether we were indeed living in a place where birth defects were more common. And they, of course, thought not at all that because we were a referral center, we should probably expect to be seeing more of the birth defects, but that the incidence was not thought to be higher. I called the CDC to see if there was a national database that was tracking birth defects by state, and that was a reasonable request because, as the CDC has been telling us for over three decades, that the leading cause of infant death in the United States is birth defects. So naturally would have expected that such a tracking of of the most important health outcome of the human race would be occurring. And they were the first ones to tell me that birth defects weren't being tracked in my state or 12 other states in the United States uh, at the time, early 2000s. That immediately brought to mind for me a question of how it was possible that the leading industrialized country in the world was not counting the leading cause of infant death. And in this election year, I had concluded from just that fact alone that the U.S. was the only industrialized country that had never had a woman president because I never thought a woman would ever permit infant mortality rate leading cause to not be tracked in 50 states. Um, Anyway, so that's how I started. Yeah. I realized I was going to have to do my own work, and we began from there. Yeah. And so how did you connect the dots between pesticide exposure and birth uh, defects? Let's remember that the majority of people that uh, collaborate and and 
I was able to utilize information from the CDC who had actually all the live births in the U.S. on CDs for the last uh, 20 years, and, and uh, those birth defects, even though they they were noted on the birth certificate, even if it was not accurate, it was at least a, an attempt to quantify the number of birth defects in each state in the country for a large time period. I also had help from the U.S. Geological Survey, who had more water data, the quality of water across the U.S. than, a, than anyone had would have suspected, and they were extremely helpful and generous in sharing that with me. I also had the insight from people like uh, Tyrone Hayes from Berkeley that atrazine, one of the most commonly used herbicides in the Corn Belt, in his lab was, was able to induce hermaphrodite frogs at, at one-tenth of a part per billion, which is uh, 40 times or 30 times lower concentration than is permitted in drinking water. And we, in fact, found that from the USGS data that drinking water in, in the Midwest was almost all of it contaminated by atrazine. So we had at least some concept that agrochemicals used extensively in the Corn Belt uh, were entering the water supply. We would have to make the assumption back then that the uh, there was not an impermeable membrane separating pregnant women from the water supply. We now have confirmation of that, but at the time we simply looked at the signature of, of pesticides in the water and said, well, in a very crude way, we can ask if the peak pesticide months of May and June are not associated with higher rates of birth defects, that um, we can move on and look for some other reason why birth defects might be a problem. I needed to find an exposure that was universal across the, the country and uh, across the state, and so I was able to ignore the local spills from factories and whatnot because I had to find something that would influence all pregnancies across the state. And so that's how we began. I actually got to meet Tyrone Hayes at Purdue and was inspired by his work. And as I said, my U.S. Geological Survey colleagues helped me get an enormous amount of water data. A medical student named Jordan Huskins was uh, worked with me for a year, and we hand-counted all the birth defects across the U.S., across 40 million live births, and we asked the simple question, if a mother is conceiving her pregnancy in January or February, does she have the same birth defect rate as the mother who conceives her pregnancy in May and June, which is a, a month she with a two- or threefold higher chance of, of high concentrations of pesticides in the water system. And it would have been easy enough for that population and that crew to measure of exposure to pesticides and, and risk of birth defects, it would be very easy to find nothing because the, the signal detection system was relatively insensitive. But instead, we found a remarkable peak in birth defects right when pesticide peaks occurred in women who were conceiving in those months. And that kind of began our um, sojourn into this question of whether we were at risk for higher birth defects because we live in the Corn Belt and whether we may have missed uh, an important factor that, that influences the leading cause of infant death. Mm -hmm. Now, I would think that once you found this data, there would be an effort to either reduce the amount of these particular pesticides that are being used or an effort for municipalities 
and rural water districts to filter out these offending pesticides. What happened after you found and published this data? Well, a lot of interesting things were learned through my own work. Um, um, I guess the, my first thought was that this very simple analysis of birth defect rates, remembering I'm talking about at the time of conception mm-hmm. versus pesticides, w- w- seemed like such a simple question to ask, and I, I wondered why it hadn't already been asked by the federal agencies that we pay uh, large amounts of money each year to. And, of course, that void, that lack of, that that I was the first to publish this seemed odd to me. The next was that as I had begun to try to assess whether these surface water contaminants were actually getting the drinking water system, I began to try to get drinking water data from the EPA. And we discovered that the EPA and the USGS are working with completely different rules of engagement, if you will. Uh, and they're, they're, not, they're not the rules of engagement that I would have expected. Whereas the U.S. Geological Survey made every effort to measure water every month and, and as many streams as possible and to over-measure over in the months in which they already knew that the peak pesticides occurred, the EPA was doing the opposite. They were measuring as few times as possible, and we found out that the largest water purveyor in, in Indiana was required to only measure four times a year, even though they were selling water every day. And they never had measured the water in June, the peak month of pesticides, not once. Hmm. And the EPA was letting them. And so what I discovered is that the whole system is a little bit rigged (laughs) in a a way that I wasn't expecting. Mm -hmm. The EPA, in their defense, they said, we don't make policy, we just enforce policy. Hmm. Uh, Well, that's not kind of what the average person on the street thought. They thought they were the environmental protection agency. (laughs) What they really are is the the policy enforcers and the policy makers are our old friends in the legislature who have heavily been funded by the same industries that that ask for protection. And I I didn't begin my career thinking in terms of uh, conspiracies and that sort of thing. I just, I was disappointed, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was a mega finding in the sense that it large data, a very large impact on, it would have a large impact on a large population. This first foray into linking pesticides with adverse outcomes of pregnancy led me to, to look at the other leading causes of infant death. And we have ultimately linked in, in at least a epidemiological way premature birth with the pesticides, birth weight with pesticides, and even academic achievement with pesticides. Others have found very similar findings and we're we're now further down the road because some of our collaborators have been able to demonstrate some molecular mechanisms that might have caused us, might have allowed the EPA to not notice some of the mega effects of contaminants on on pregnant women and and their babies which is called epigenetics. Mm -hmm. So we began with what are called epidemiological studies. It's important for the audience to know that those are are studies that never are capable of proving a cause and effect relationship. They're they're simply correlating an adverse outcome with another measurement. But it's also important to say that every, every major breakthrough in medicine began with epidemiology. Zika virus, you know, we start counting women who 
add a virus infection, and then we count the babies uh, with a particular problem um, like uh, microcephaly. And so far, we've just correlated one with the other. Now, imagine doing the, the prospective double-blind study that would be needed to prove it. Imagine enrolling a 1,000 women and saying half of you are going to get infected with Zika and half not, and we'll see who has more microcephaly. Right. That experiment never gets done in humans. Right. And if we did it in rats, we might suffer from the problem that they're maybe immune to mm-hmm. Zika virus. Um, so we have to use envir- these kind of environmental co- correlative studies. I'm happy to to argue that there are limitations with anyone, but I also would say that you know my studies should have found nothing, you know, because the uh, because the measurements are are crude. So it would have been more likely to find nothing than to find a, a strong signal. Mm-hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Paul Winchester. He is a distinguished physician, board certified in perinatal and neonatal medicine and pediatrics, 40 years of experience, and his specialty is truly looking at the impact of pesticides on fetal development. I have to ask, since you've got this epidemiological data, so oftentimes we hear, well, you, you don't have cause and effect, so we don't want to intervene. There are economic interests at play. How do we argue for safe water, protecting our water supply, no matter what the cost, because we can't possibly put a cost on the loss of life or or the harm to life, and yet at the same time, we've got epidemiological data and not cause-effect. So we're in this conundrum, and yet we want to change policy. What do we do? Well, this is a really, really good question, and and so I have had to make my own choices. (laughs) My colleague from that we haven't introduced yet from Washington State University, Mike Skinner, I suppose this work we should mention at this point because part of what we have to do is discover what the definition of safe is. Mm. And and I think that we could argue that from an industry's point of view, uh, if, if they've gone to fairly extensive effort to find something that is an effective weed killer that actually does seem to increase the uh, the harvest of crops that are vital to you know, the American food system, they would like to, you know, if they expose people and animals and, and undergo many studies that the EPA requires and really find no major major harm, uh, they would prefer to stop there because, it, you know, it's in their interest that it be safe. Uh, after my studies had shown these extensive correlations with really the leading negative outcome of pregnancy that we know of is, is uh, premature birth, which had been going up in an epidemic fashion over many, many years. With the effects I've already mentioned, we found a very strong relationship between shortening of pregnancy and, and peak pesticides as well. And this had been confirmed by other studies that the NIH had funded. Mike Skinner did it the other way. He, he took mice and gave them pesticides at very low doses that were already calculated to cause no harm and watch to see what would happen. Uh, one of the things we've learned over many years is that the kind of harm that chemicals can, can cause 
is sometimes different than what what we would normally think of. We we normally think if I drank a, a glass of this stuff and it, I didn't fall over dead, that's good. That means I didn't die from it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I don't get sick from it, that's good. And if uh, I don't see any effects, you know, a week later, that's good. But what if this thing changed the hormones in my body in such a way that my baby has been altered in some way? And we discovered with DDT that, uh, indeed, it wasn't acting as a poison, but it was changing the hormones in the offspring and the, the course of pregnancy so that the eggshells were too soft to, to support life. Um, it even changed the behavior of some of the mating pairs. And uh, ultimately, the bald eagle was nearly going extinct before we noticed this tremendously harmful effect that it wasn't the same as watching a rat die uh, in a cage. Mm-hmm. So Mike found, after he tried a couple of these pesticides on pregnant rats, that when they gave birth to their babies, and remember this is in rats where they're fairly tough and resistant, and the dose was only for a week and only a low dose, he found nothing wrong with with the newborn at all. They were not small. They weren't deformed. The pregnancies had gone well. There were just as many babies in, in the control group as in, in the exposed group. And frankly, he and his graduate student thought they'd failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, all they could do was to just eat and see if, if the rat had matured to become an adult, that the health appearance of health was sustained. And it wasn't until the, the rats became mature adults that all of the major findings of his work began to be... Now think about what that means in humans. We'd have to wait 21 years old to see some of the negative effects of a fetal exposure. We don't have that kind of time. <laughs> so in rats, you can just wait six months and see the effects. And the effects were Amazing very low birth sperm counts in, in the males, uh, cancer in the males. Uh, there were shortened lifespan. There were glucose, uh, sugar anomalies. There were a kidney disorders. Tested more chemicals. He's found that all of them interfere with the onset of puberty and uh, cause premature onset of puberty. All of them seem to cause polycystic ovaries in babies, uh, in the females. And one of the most interesting findings is more than one of them cause obesity in their offspring. Then Mike found yet another phenomenon. So the first thing he found was that you can have a fetal exposure, even a brief and low-dose exposure that appears to be harmless at birth, but not until adulthood becomes manifestly abnormal, causes disease, and, and pretty much every subspecialty of medicine would have seen his offspring each one not knowing the origin of the problem, <laughs> but in a, in a rat model, you can trace it directly to a, an exposure in, in the fetal life to a chemical. The, uh, the next accident of his lab was to breed one of these offspring and to see what happened in their offspring and so on. And to his surprise, these uh, adult second and third generation and fourth generation offspring also had disease. He had created through one fetal exposure, uh, diseases that weren't manifested until adulthood and were heritable. Hmm. Now, imagine now going back to the EPA and saying, you know, these chemicals that we sadly can now find in virtually every pregnant mother 
DDT is, is found in every single pregnant mother in America. In fact, it's been found in every, virtually every life form on the planet. So after we've fully contaminated the human species, we discover that it's doing something that we hadn't even imagined it could have done. It's not just affecting the offspring that were exposed, but their descendants. And what is it doing? Well, 50% of the third generation offspring of TDT are found to be obese. That's just an example of an adverse outcome. It doesn't look like death. It doesn't even show up for, for the first months of life. But here we are in the midst of an epidemic of obesity in, the, in America that we, we're completely flummoxed over. We, we assume it must be just a bunch of really bad choice eating habits and uh, McDonald's hamburgers must be to blame. And yet the rats didn't have opportunities to eat at McDonald's or to make bad food choices. They yeah. simply had great-grandmothers who had a, had a dose of chemicals that we are now using across the nation in, in millions of tons. Mm-hmm. I know that this probably sounds depressing and overwhelming to our listeners, because it is. But it would seem that it would be in our best interest to have a strong plan and intervention now. Do we have the ear of our policymakers, or are we so are we so concerned about one part of the economic equation without looking at the other that we are immobilized? Well, I'm glad you used the word equation because I think it, it is that, you know. Um, we have to do things that protect us from from starvation, for instance, and, and from the basic necessities of life. But beyond that, we we can't afford to be doing things that ultimately, you know, I, I suppose the worst outcome of, of the chemical exposures that we have, have now seen in virtually every one of them is an impact on fertility. Yeah. And when in Darwinian terms, if you if you begin to turn the, the fertility equation downward in a species, it's doomed over the long run. It eventually you can't have a decreasing fertility. That's an unsustainable long term solution. Right. It's interesting that the human industrialized countries have reached the lowest fertility rates in history and nobody's mentioning anything about it even though that's precisely what you predict from the current levels of contamination. But I I think your question is, you know, the the best example I can look at, let's take tobacco use, for instance. Uh, How long did it take us to believe that tobacco could be harmful to your health? And uh, who were, what was the impediment to us learning that it was harmful? It's, it's, It's not so much that it's addictive, it's that it actually kills you. Yeah. But since there was a long time between the use of tobacco and the death, it took a long time for people to, to believe one was connected to the other. Death by cancer, death by heart disease, etc. And in the meantime, we had institutes of science of the study of tobacco that were funded by the tobacco industry to produce junk science that said it was safe and tell the congressman that it was. In fact, uh, we, I live in a state that still pays farmers to, to grow tobacco. And in some of our counties, we have one-third of every pregnant population of pregnant women that are smoking while pregnant. It's mind-boggling. But we have 
we have impacted the use of tobacco in our country in a noticeable way, albeit on the backs of, I don't know, shall we say unbelievers? Yeah. <laughs> we have a similar argument going on about whether the, the icebergs uh, and uh, exactly. the masses of Arctic uh, masses of ice are melting or not, whether the Earth is undergoing global warming. And it's taken a long time for people to believe it. Um, meanwhile, some island nations in the Pacific have gone literally underwater. <laughs> the water has risen enough that they no longer have a place to live. And if you ask them if the oceans are rising, they, they, they would all say, yes, they are. <laughs> so yeah, we we've got. Uh, so my side of this is to, is I I don't want to be the the chicken little I am giving this interview with you, but I I feel like my responsibility to have this unique position in 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 our society where I take care of literally take care of all the babies who have problems, and I uh, can with the help of of uh, colleagues assist in finding out how it is, what mechanisms of harm the chemicals we're finding in our pregnant mothers could, you know, could be linking to disease adverse outcomes of pregnancy. And, and I suppose the biggest, uh, biggest discovery we've made with these epigenetic studies is that there is a new way that um, chemicals can harm us that wasn't taught in my medical school. It's essentially a new discovery. And the more we have studied it, the more we recognize that it's been there all along. It's a, it's a very robust system of imprinting DNA to change gene, gene expression under stress. Mother Nature is still trying to save us. I call it the live fast and die young phenotype. But live fast, die young produces more deaths all along the way, more reductions in cognitive ability, and uh, more adverse outcomes. And possibly reduced fertility. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was our intention, to put ourselves on a path of chemical stress, the likes of which has never been seen before. But I, I think more and more people, uh, including prominent researchers there at Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, and, and across the nation, across the world, are seeing what now seems to be an incontrovertible link between these environmental chemicals and, and adverse health outcomes. Mm-hmm. We're kind of coming to a nexus on it, uh, not unlike that which we have come to with global warming and with tobacco. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to imagine we don't need to pull out guns and lawyers, but uh, I doubt that we'll progress fast enough unless everyone is empowered in some way to say no. Well, Dr. Winchester, we're going to have to end our conversation on that note But I think that the first step for making change is an informed public. And I cannot thank you enough for doing your work and bringing your voice to our listeners to help us understand what is really going on. And I will provide everyone with a link to an excellent article you wrote in Pesticides and You. It's titled Reproductive Effects Peak with Pesticide Exposure looking at seasonal water contamination, I would love for you to come back and continue this conversation as your research evolves. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. 
And Dr. Winchester, it was a real honor to speak with you. And I want to be your partner in helping raise awareness about these issues so that we can have a policy impact. Thank you. Thank you.